Hey everybody, it's your host Dylan Conroy back with another episode of the Ad Podcast. This week we are north in Toronto interviewing Jeff Weiser, the Chief Marketing Officer of Shopify, and talking about how Shopify is helping power the next generation direct-to-consumer e-com business and helping those business owners have a more direct relationship with the customers and control their brand. Well, it seems like where Adobe's kind of mantra is like, how do we get creators to execute on their creative ideas? You guys almost have a similar ethos or vision of like, how do you get that entrepreneur who's been sitting on the sidelines and has thinking, gosh, I've got this great idea for a product or I've got this great idea for a business that keeps me up at night, but I'm not a computer programmer. I'm not a guy who can build a business. I, I can build a really great product, but I have no idea how to go to market and get get yeah. it sold on the internet. I think there's two key things in what you just said. Yeah. One is this idea that you didn't know what we are. I think that's largely because Shopify makes the merchant the hero. If you're on some some marketplaces, Amazon or Etsy, it's branded Amazon or Etsy, right? And you mm -hmm. have to subscribe to their branding. In the Shopify universe, the merchant has full control over all of their branding, and we're basically a retail operating system in the background. So we don't make ourselves the hero, we make the brand the hero, give the merchant control over that brand. And so it's sort of by design that folks haven't heard of us in yeah. the consumer world. Mm -hmm. It's probably not the case in, in the business world. Right. The $17 billion market cap is, yeah, is yeah. open semis. With respect to these, this idea of tipping people over the edge, to try that thing that's been sort of nagging at them and that they want to do. It's, it is sort of the same concept. We're trying to enable retailers at any part of their life cycle with the right tooling. So on the very high end, yeah, it could be a Fortune 500 company, but on the very low end, we have sole owner proprietors and mom and pop shops that we've made it so darn easy yeah. to try your hand at entrepreneurship that if you had that idea, you were contemplating trying it. Shopify is the thing that I think can push you over the edge. And it seems like a lot of it just comes from those passion points that kind of keep you up at night. Part of the research when I was doing the research for this interview, I read about these guys, I think it's called like Smash Golf or something like that. I can't remember the exact name of the company, but it was uh, this guy who was doing long distance golf contests. He couldn't find a club that worked for him. So he went back to his old, old university and had them custom manufacture a club and then just kind of doing this as a side hustle. And then he actually got fired from his job when he had a, and had a kid on the way and he was able to double down on his Shopify business and now four hour work week, you know, style sitting on a beach somewhere and just running a really cool business. So it sounds like there's a, is that kind of how a lot of people kind of come into the platform is they think of this as kind of a, a side business or a side hustle and then it becomes something more? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. A lot of folks feel constrained for better or worse by their day job. So we have tons of research that says, although the 21st century, promises to be this time of unprecedented opportunity and much is made of big successful multi-billionaire entrepreneurs actually entrepreneurship is at a four decade low wow. people are moving for new job opportunities at a lower rate than ever before access to education and the skills you would need to build your own web property that can facilitate commerce in the absence of a shopify is worse than ever at a time of our greatest inequality and so you've got these people that want to free themselves from the corporate shackles, but it's not financially feasible for them to do so. So I think for a lot of those folks, as you point out, it starts out as a side hustle mm -hmm. as they start with the Shopify basic plan, which can cost as little as $29. It starts to experience, you know, <laughs> yeah, per month, right? So you're running your business for like 300 bucks a year. Wow. So, you know, you'll do the math, but it's less than 350. They start to have some success. We introduce them to some additional tooling as well as the content to teach them how to use it effectively. They have a little more success. Now all of a sudden they've freed themselves from their job. They're actually making more money with Shopify. 
and it's given them the kind of freedom that they've really craved, which contrary to, to popular legend, which would say something like entrepreneurship is about becoming the next Jeff Bezos. Yeah, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. For them, entrepreneurship is about like, I can pause and pick my kids up from it's freedom. school. Yeah. Freedom and independence. And we find that that's what motivates our entrepreneurs. And, and frankly, they don't even look like the popular depiction of an entrepreneur. You know, we think of these brash, rich, white, San Francisco-based men. <laughs> you know, folks over 50 are more than twice as likely to start a business as millennials. Wow. African-American women are starting businesses at a higher rate than ever before. And so this popular depiction of the entrepreneur is really not what we experience at Shopify servicing what we think of as real entrepreneurs. Now, it's kind of a heady thing from a brand perspective to try to take on and redefine and reclaim the term entrepreneurship, and we actually don't really do that in our marketing, but an entrepreneur to us is something very different than what it is in pop culture. So going back a little bit to your background and kind of doing my research on you, it seems that you've had an interesting career and your ascension to the chief marketing officer is through what I would consider a somewhat non-traditional pathway coming more from the perspective of a quant, an analyst, a marketer focused on the data science piece versus big branding campaigns or being an ad agency guy or something like that. We talk a little bit about your experience coming up through that channel, how that's prepared for you for your job today. And then do you see that being more of a trend as we move yeah. into the future? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's a tendency when people ask you to tell them about your career to, to especially if you're being interviewed, not, you know, not for your podcast, but like yeah. for a job opening right, right. to try to portray things in this incredibly linear fashion. Like, oh, well, I did this so I could do this other thing. And of course I knew that would be to this other thing. The reality is that 15 years ago, you said, Jeff, one day you'll be a marketer. I'd say you're effing crazy. Like, <laughs> well, I was a quant through and through for over a decade. I managed analytics and strategy departments, and that was really all I did. And they ran a pretty broad broad gamut of of quantitative work, anything from like basic like reporting, dashboarding, marketing analysis, to we did a lot of financial work, FP&A-ish kind of work, budgeting, three and five year corporate planning, up through like hard stuff, right? Data science, what today is called big data, Mm -hmm. predictive modeling, et cetera. And as you surely know, over the last decade or so, marketing became a much more quantitative discipline driven by a couple different things, but two of the most important ones are the move of media dollars from offline towards trackable digital channels, and also sort of the the broad availability of third-party data to help inform your modeling for for CRM. Marketers started coming to me being, hey, I've got a $100 million budget, what's the optimal way to split it up? Or I'm running a customer marketing program, I'd love to have segments, and I'd love for them to be analytically derived, can you help? And I'd say, I don't know, like the quant team's happy to try. We'll take a look at the data. And as we dug into the marketing data and made recommendations to marketers, they started to get really good results. And so the company I was with at the time was like, oh, these marketers are kind of doing well when they go to the quant team. Why don't we try moving one department under Jeff? So I took on the CRM practice, which is, you know, customer relationship yeah, mm-hmm. marketing. So marketing to your existing customers. And we were fortunate to double the revenue in the first two years. Wow. And they're like, oh, that was pretty good. Why don't we try moving acquisition marketing under Jeff? The basic trajectory was that every year or so, I'd take on another marketing department. But I was still kind of surprised when the phone started ringing and companies were like, hey, you want to be our CMO? Wow. And it was a little bit of like a trial by fire when I took on the first CMO gig. Because as you point out, yes, marketing is becoming more of a quantitative discipline driven by data science. But at the same time, you've got to do that core market research, 
the market segmentation, brand position and identity, product marketing was new to me. And some of that stuff I had to learn on the ground yeah. from folks who competent to manage, but I hadn't done their jobs. This time through, it's not my first rodeo. And so, right. you know, I've become competent in the more, let's say, brand and creative elements of the CMO gig. So I've become more well-rounded that way. But yeah, you know, I read a stat that said 15% of marketers, uh, CMOs come from analytical backgrounds. Wow. And I think that number is gonna be way higher in the future. Changing. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm increasingly, I increasingly hear from recruiters things, man, this company's really looking to dump its traditionally trained CPG brand marketer and hire like a font marketer. Who do you know? That's cool. Uh, so, so I think it'll be more, but I also do worry a little bit about the possible overcorrection. Hmm. All the modeling in the world will tell you what's working and maybe yeah. why it's working, but it won't actually deliver experiences that do work, Yeah. right? And so you still need creative that sings, so to speak, to deliver Some the numbers. creates the halo. Yeah, it's it's the well, to deliver yeah. the numbers that the models actually deem success, yeah. right? So, so it's both, yeah. you know. Yeah, and you just kind of mentioned the, you know, the CPG world. And as far as looking for brand managers that kind of have a little bit more of that background, I read uh, some interesting stories, or I can't remember if it was a, a reading or maybe hearing your CEO Toby speak, but it seems like what Shopify has been able to provide, especially to the CPG marketers of the world, is faster, quicker solution to try the DR channel with a given product line where in the past they would have to go to the chief information officer, do a, some kind of a wreck that's going to take a one-year build-out in order to, to go to market. And some of these brand managers are just saying, screw it. They're just going rogue and like banging their own credit card for a Shopify account and just taking a new product launch to the streets. Can you talk about any of those successes or kind of how that's kind of changing the game almost? Yeah, a bit I, mean, I, I think that what you're seeing is that what the 21st century brand is the direct-to-consumer brand. I'll let them speak for themselves, but the IAB, the, the Interactive Advertising Bureau, yeah, yeah, whatever it stands for, right. um, done a ton of research around this and they've got a whole thesis about the difference between the 20th century retail intermediated brand and the disintermediated 21st century direct-to-consumer brand. Um, and I'm actually going to be speaking about it at their first direct brand summit in late October. But I think you're absolutely right. What the CPGs are, are standing up and taking notice of is this direct-to-consumer trend. And they're saying, well, how can I free myself from this third-party mediated relationship with the consumer? And so you see things. I mean, the one that sticks out in my mind is that I'm, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I think it was Coke, right? Mm -hmm. Like started selling uh, soda cans with names on them, right? right? Yeah. Like personalization. Um, yeah, personalization yeah. is one of the easiest ways to go direct to consumer. So we're seeing CPGs whip up quick experiments. Like here's a bag of potato chips that's personalized for you in some way and building them on Shopify. We're also seeing the case that you referred to, which is, I don't want to wait in some IT queue, yeah. you know, for three or five years. And so I'm going to gonna go rogue, to, again, to use your phrase. Dollar but, shave might pop up in that year that you're waiting for your technology yeah, exactly. to come around. You might have to buy them for a billion dollars, <laughs> but you, you could have just, just built that brand on your own. And yeah. so we're absolutely seeing folks like that flock to Shopify. And so it's really interesting to see this platform that was really built for the SMB. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we have the plus sort of the true enterprise high end of the market. But the, the thinking there, I think initially, and this, this really predates my time at Shopify, was that that was for the SMB brands we had brought in and nurtured with our products that were then ready to graduate. It had gotten bigger. But now seeing the CPGs, bigger companies enter at that level and sort of from the top down because the, the direct-to-consumer brands have made themselves noticed and have identified themselves as the wave of the future, I think is 
is an interesting phenomenon. I think you're fairly new to the job, right? Like uh, about six months in, or do I have that right? Yeah, well, you know, they Give say, yeah, what's the average tenure of a CMO these days? Someone told me it's like 18 months. What attracted you to Shopify, and why did you take the role over here, besides the, the obvious things? What really got you excited about this role? This might sound redundant with, with something that I've already said. I'm really obsessed with direct-to-consumer yeah. marketing it, it for a couple different reasons. One is that just as, like I think of it in three different axes, right? One is like as a consumer. I think I mentioned before you started taping that everything I'm wearing is direct to consumer. <laughs> Facebook's got me in absolutely the right segment. Yeah. All day long, I see like the direct to consumer brands advertising to me, whether it's Chubbies or Greats. Yeah. I'm like, I can't help myself but buy them. It's like, <laughs> so I think there's a real market for, hey, I want designer quality apparel, which is our biggest category, but whatever it is, be razors at half the price and get a chance to support independent entrepreneurs in the process. The second axis I think it's really interesting on is the marketing axis. Now, I'm in the business as a B2B marketer of Shopify in marketing the retail operating system to the merchant. Mm -hmm. But the merchant is a direct-to-consumer advertiser that they're often social first. They have an immediate feedback loop on which creative is working and which isn't. So having been a direct response marketer before I was a CMO, I understand the immediacy of the direct-to-consumer feedback loop on the marketing side that our merchants are experiencing. And so I love that. And then, of course, the third is to be really joining the company that's emerging as the platform of choice for this new type of brand that I really genuinely believe will come to dominate the marketplace. Those three things come together and make this the perfect job and environment for me. It's been an amazing six months. I suspect I'll blink and it'll be six years. I'll be yeah. pleased if that's the case. Talking about your marketing around, it's a little bit of a hybrid of, you know, you're really marketing to the merchants, but it's interesting because most of the marketing that I saw it's really about celebrating your customers, right? The most recent stuff that you guys put out about the ability to use VR and put like a bike inside of somebody's living room so you don't have to, you no longer have to just look at pictures and think about like, what's the couch gonna look like in the corner? Seems like a lot of your campaigns are really driven around customer success stories, like finding somebody out in your ecosystem who is doing something right or bringing them maybe first look at a new piece of technology or a new way to market to their customers and then building a customer case study out of that that's really exciting and cool. Is that yeah. kind of the... Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's interesting. Like, in a certain way, you just reminded me of something that I should have put in my last answer to your question of why <laughs> I joined Shopify. Like, I've been in some businesses before that are more or less commodities. And I guess there's a positive spin you can put on that, which is like, well, if it's a commodity, then what could be more important than the marketing as a way mm -hmm. to differentiate it? But at the end of the day, it's no better or no worse than any of the competitive products that are out there. Shopify really is on the bleeding edge and has created, in my opinion, just a better mousetrap than what else is out there. So it's a partial answer to the last question is why I joined. It's so much easier and so much more fun to market a product that is fundamentally better and that you believe in. Mm -hmm. Pivoting to the question you asked about AR, VR, Shopify's been thinking about that for three years. We're always taking advantage of the latest AR kit Apple tools. And our perspective is that shopping is going to become an increasingly immersive experience. We've always known it's a non-linear experience these days and that consumer may discover a product in one channel, maybe it's a social channel, then they may go search for it and find it on a website, but it's, it's non-linear. In addition to the non-linearity of the purchasing journey, I think we're going to see an immersive purchasing journey. And so the ability to envision the bicycle in my space or how's that piece of furniture going to fit or do the, do, does this clothing item I'm 
thinking about buying match my shoes mm -hmm. and being able to take the clothing item that's on your mobile device or your computer, right, and line it up against your shoes as though they're in the same room. It's amazing. We've been three years ahead of that trend. We're proud of the tools we're offering. So you talked a little bit about the competitive set. Who is the competitive set? From my research, all I could really think about is maybe Amazon and there's a whole debate about, okay, well, Amazon is building, at the end of the day, a media business and they're collecting data on all their customers and it seems like at some point they could very much cut a lot of these people that they empower out of the uh, out of the picture to some degree by using that data set and going directly to whoever's manufacturing the item in China. Or, so, well, I mean, that's like, that's, you know, caveat emptor, right? Yeah. Like, buyer beware. Mm -hmm. Amazon is a marketplace yeah. and Amazon is, it's wonderful. I buy lots of barcode items on Amazon, mm -hmm. toothpaste, toilet paper, <laughs> what, what, what have you. But the reality is that Amazon's also going to control your brand, right? You don't own the depiction of your brand and the experience for your consumers if you're on Amazon. You don't own the customer relationship. So in that sense, it's not any more disintermediated than the 20th century brand that relied on a retail was. And you don't even in many cases get to set your pricing on Amazon. So mm -hmm. there's a pretty high level of control. So then the key differentiator for Shopify is, as I described earlier, you might not even know if a store is Shopify powered. The merchant has so much control Seamless. over the brand experience. There's a story, this is actually not an Amazon story, but it's a marketplace story that yeah. is really relevant here that, that some folks on, on my brand team love to tell and that, that I'll reiterate, which is that we have someone actually who's, who's on our brand team here and she was selling a, a apparel that's targeted to the LGBTQ plus market mm. and she was selling it on one of these marketplaces where she didn't have a tremendous amount of control over her brand and she would get feedback like, Oh, like, hey, thanks, like, that's a cool t-shirt, I'm really glad I bought it. When she moved to her store to Shopify, it's, it's still on Shopify, it's called Passion Fruit, and I'd encourage anyone to look at it. But when this member of our team, Liz, moved Passion Fruit over to, it was called something different then, but now it's Passion Fruit. Yeah. When she moved over to Shopify, she wasn't getting feedback anymore, oh, hey, cool t-shirt. She was able to infuse it so much with her brand and her identity that she was getting feedback like, cool t-shirt, I came out to my parents wearing wow. that. There's a real power in stories like that. If you ask me what makes Shopify different from Amazon or any other marketplace, there's the answer. Yeah, right. more of a way to build a real relationship with your customers versus, he said, order toilet paper or whatever, yeah, <laughs> commodities I mean, and kind there's, of- the, There's the, a time and a place for that too. Yeah, I'd rather be aligned with what you offer and the degree to which you are able to infuse your identity and brand into it helps me come to grips with and externalize my identity. That's a lot more powerful to me. In my research, I saw an interview with you at Cannes last year talking about brands taking a active political stance on issues in their marketing. We've obviously heard tons of things like that in the Colin Kaepernick example that just boosts Nike's market share by I think $40 billion or something crazy like that. You know, I've seen some, you guys have take, come out against, or taken at least a, planted a flag around some issues like selling guns or, or going bullish into the cannabis market. Comments or thoughts on the, the brands taking a political stance in their, in their marketing as you're thinking about stuff here? Yeah, I mean, I think about that largely from an internal culture perspective. So we've built a culture internally where diversity, freedom of expression, debate and discourse and inclusive practice 
are so core to what we do. So I've been in politically active environments before, you know, companies that sign amicus briefs mm -hmm. for this, that, or the other thing. I don't know that I've ever been in a company before that had a diversity and inclusion department. Wow. And so that, you know, one way to tell what a company values is where it puts its resources, right? And so when you have a department of folks committed to diversity and inclusion, all the way up to a new director level hire, we've got, that's pretty serious. And I spoke previously in the case of passion fruit about how we support merchants of all identities, of all stripes, colors, shapes, and sizes in their entrepreneurial efforts. And so I think you see it both in our external positions and how we help merchants of all stripes and in the internal culture that we fostered. And it's real, we live it every day. It's not like we've got this department tucked away in the corner. Uh, mm -hmm. We have really active slack debates about <laughs> political issues that get heated. Toby's an incredible steward of that kind of culture where it's not top down, you know, I'm the boss, therefore my opinion on something subjective must be correct. Yeah. This is an incredibly high trust environment and our employees have a real voice in everything we do. And so that's something that you referenced the fact that I'm only six months in. That's something that would, that's been like a really pleasant surprise compared to any other workplace I've ever been in. What do you see are some of the biggest opportunities for marketers today? And how is ad tech and programmatic moving these trends forward? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's, I always think about marketing technology in general mm. as being a double-edged sword. Let's say you're a fairly big, sophisticated marketing operation, as I like to think Shopify is. Certainly, we're, we're building towards that. Marketing technology can be great if you understand what's happening under the hood. Mm -hmm. I've had a couple instances in my career where I've actually been able to see like the algorithm within the black box and have been surprised that maybe it's not doing exactly what you want to do, what you want it to do or what you think it's doing, right? Mm -hmm. So where you have enough resourcing and you're a big enough sophisticated operation, I think the best role for MarTech is to extend the bandwidth of a team, like where it can simplify our workflow, for example, mm -hmm. right? I would always, for example, choose to have my own data scientists who understand my business, building an algorithm rather than using a black box algorithm, especially if they won't reveal to you what's under the hood. But things are very, very different. A sole owner, proprietor, entrepreneur, or a mom and pop shop, they don't have a marketing department. Yeah. Their marketing department might be like 15% of their own time without any training in the discipline. And so one of the things that's been really important to Shopify on the product side is to offer marketing technology tools like something called Kit, something called Ping. These are all things that anyone listening to this can look into. But we offer MarTech tools that we think are relevant and are massively helpful to smaller merchants, larger, more sophisticated side where you're taking advantage of things like a massive marketing cloud. It's a little bit of buyer beware. And if I can't see what's happening under the hood, reluctant, particularly as a former quant, to outsource my decision-making to an algorithm I might not understand. Seems like when your job as the CMO is to not only think about evaluating products in the marketplace from the perspective of how would Shopify use it to achieve their goals, but you also have 600,000 customers that you've got to make sure that if you pick something to put into your partner network or something that allows the the retailers to add on different channels, you've got to really kick the tires on those things pretty heavy before you're willing to pass them on and put your name on it to potentially push downstream to your customer base. Yeah, it's, it's funny. This is the second 
CMO gig for me in a row is that I was at Shutterstock previously mm-hmm. where on some level like you're marketing to folks who are in turn marketing mm-hmm. and it's like kind of this like hall of mirrors kind of thing <laughs> where like, trying to maintain both concepts in your mind yeah. simultaneously is like a tricky thing to do. We're really fortunate at Shopify. We have a really sophisticated team out in San Francisco that's building the MarTech product for our merchants. And we've got sophisticated internal teams with, that are making sure that our enterprise marketing operation here at Shopify is using the right MarTech for us. And it's not always the same set of tools. But yeah, we're looking at both sides of the equation and it's a, it's a fascinating place to be, particularly with MarTech being a space that's moving so fast. There's incredible new things happening, but at the same time, there are things that were once sophisticated that are getting crushed because mm-hmm. they're being commoditized. Yeah. There was a time when having a DMP was like some massive differentiator. Now people are like, DMP, that's a commodity, you know? It's it's an incredible time to be someone who's excited about technology in marketing. I know we've talked about a few brands, you know, today already on the platform. Any other standouts that you see that are really excelling in marketing and they could be customers or even brands outside of the customer set that you're really look to, to, that you think is doing a really good job that you guys would love to be in business with? You know, we want to be in business with everyone, so I'm very reluctant to choose winners on that side. The key point to me is that we service the entire spectrum of where you are in your retail life cycle. And I think the most exciting thing where I get really psyched about marketers is seeing them like truly make it. The best recent example is a watch company called Movement Mm -hmm. um, that was recently acquired by Movado. So now this is like a big fish, right? For I think it was $100 million or, or thereabouts. Folks that can do that kind of scrappy marketing and have that kind of outcome, I always get excited about that. To choose a non-Shopify merchant that predates my tenure here, you know, I thought Dollar Shave Club yeah. was just incredible. You know, it's funny, like when you're in a big operation, oh, we'll just sort of, you know, let's buy some ads and let's look at the ROAS on them. And if we're above a certain R return on investment threshold, scale it up. Right. And if we're below that threshold, scale it down. When you're like this direct-to-consumer company starting out, you don't have an unlimited budget to spend against a lifetime ROI of a customer, <laughs> you're cash constrained. And when companies spend against a lifetime re- value return, which is the typical way to do things, there, there's some time to break even. The dollar I spend on the ad today will pay back and become profitable over the lifetime of having the customer. But the time to break even could be six months, a year, two years. When you're cash constrained, you could care less about, the, it's, all, it's a funny thing, it's like on two polar ends, you have to worry about the cash. The company that's the startup has to worry about the cash impact even in a lifetime profitable advertising equation because they're going to go in the hole today and they might be cash constrained and not have the money. The other company, and I'm so pleased not to work for one, that has to think about that is the publicly traded company that manages to quarterly street expectations. Mm -hmm. So Shopify does not manage to the street. We manage to be in a hundred year company, which is Toby's stated ambition. We want to be around a hundred years. We feel we're on a trajectory to do that, but there are companies that'll say, hey, I know, you know, we'll go to their CMO, and I've heard stories like this, and say, hey, I know all the money you're spending on search, AdWords, for example, is really, really profitable over the lifetime of the customer, but it takes six months to pay back. We want the quarterly EBITDA number to look good, and so we're gonna ask you to turn off all the marketing so we can deliver a number to the street. That's the long-term detriment of the company and the brand, and I'm so pleased to be working for a brand and a founder that just doesn't think that way. Data-driven marketing is a really hot topic today. How does Shopify use that to their advantage? It's a funny question to answer because you, like, you never want to give away the secret sauce. 
What I would say is that we're fairly rigorous about measuring the productivity of all our acquisition marketing spend and understanding in a nuanced way what the profitability of that is. And once we've acquired the customer, we're equally, we're equally diligent about using data-driven measures to grow their lifetime value. And those things, of course, interact. The more you can grow the lifetime value of a customer, the more you can spend to get them at the same profit margin. And so I'm always trying to build into a flywheel where I'm acquiring some customers, I'm running tests to grow their lifetime value. That then allows me to spend more to get them in the first place while maintaining a profit margin that the CFO would care about. Well, now that I'm spending more to get them, I'm driving even more customers, which means running still further tests, which means even more improvement to the ability to spend and acquire customers, and it's a self-accelerating cycle. If you think about one thing that our CEO Toby's big on is sort of systems thinking. And if you think about the system of that flywheel, it's self-accelerating and self-reinforcing. And so that's the model I try to run as a marketer. But at the same time, I, you know, as I said to you earlier, I, I worry about the overcorrection. You could have the world's greatest data models to understand those dynamics, mm -hmm. but if you want to get, get the positive results that actually lead to gains in lifetime value and decreases in acquisition expense, you need creative that people are going to want to click on. Yeah, you know, gotta, it's that simple. You like, got to create that halo at the top of the funnel too, yeah. or you run out of that lower funnel activity to be able to Yeah, it's funny convert, I talk right? about like the lower yeah. funnels like picking up the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. There are times when you got to shake the trees to knock the, the fruit mm -hmm. to the ground so that you have something to pick up. It strains the metaphor a little bit, but shaking the trees to me is the brand halo that you want to create with upper funnel activity. Yeah, it's kind of like you talked about, like even with like Dollar Shave, you know, you think of those guys as hardcore DR advertisers, every dollar is spent as it is measured and thought about from a return on investment. But then, you know, two years later, you hear them on the radio and you hear them on Sirius and you drive around LA and they're on the side of buses and stuff like that because eventually you tap out those DR channels and if you don't create more demand at the top of the funnel, then where are those new customers gonna come from? A thousand percent, like, like you run, you start to run out of scale. Yeah. You know, I also kind of have this hypothesis, I don't really have much data to back this up or haven't sought this data, that there's such a premium on measure, this goes back to like, has the pendulum swung too far mm -hmm. in the direction of quantifiable direct response marketing, yeah. but there's such a premium on just the fact of being able to measure something, not that it's working or that it's not working, just the premium of measurability, that less measurable channels may actually be selling at a discount to their channel, a discount to their channel value, just because they're not measurable. Yeah. Not because they work any less, right. but because there's a premium on measurability per se. Yeah, and that's, that's crazy. The burden then on the analytical marketer is to figure out how do I put a measurement around this? And in the absence of a perfect measurement, what experiments can I design that will tell me directionally at least whether this is working or not. Otherwise, as you point out, you're going to run out of scale very quickly. My space is in the influencer marketing world. I see there's some really cool examples of Shopify helping empower influencers like say like a Kylie Jenner at the ultimate pinnacle type example to control her own brand and build a business versus having to go to the old route, which was go to a cosmetics company, do a licensing deal maybe best case scenario you get a jv or something like that how do you guys think about influencers as a channel not only from the perspective of hey they have you know an audience that can be rented and they can create content but they're also brands in them in their own right and can become businesses in addition to just being a media channel or a creative partner yeah that, that's an interesting question that sort of results in another one of those hall, hall yeah. of mirror kind of phenomena mm -hmm. because anyone who is an influencer 
by definition has a built-in audience, yep. which makes them an incredibly logical candidate to be a Shopify merchant. Anyone who has success as a Shopify merchant, especially if they already have a built-in audience, is a perfect advertising channel for us as the provider of the operating system mm -hmm. that they also sell their goods on. And so that's another kind of circular flywheel in the vein of what I described with quantitative marketing that we try to take advantage of. So I think it's no secret that we got a lot of attention when Kylie was featured on the cover of Forbes. Yeah. But a lot of folks didn't know until that point that, you know, that her platform, yeah, that Shopify's yeah. in the background. So great example of someone being both a successful merchant and an advertising medium, in that case, the channel was PR and also, you know, but also being an advertising medium for the company. And so we benefit doubly from those kind of And uh, scalability and stuff. I think I read something like she has a team of like 18 people or something like that. And it's the fastest growing company, fastest growing brand. It might out outpace Dollar Shave even as far as like quickest company to a billion dollars. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. I'm embarrassed that I don't know her exact metrics offhand, but what I can say is if she's got 18 employees, while on the one hand that may sound big, I think the most recent number I read about her revenue was 800 million. Yep. On a ratio of revenue to employees, that's amazing. A lot of companies try to stay in one to two million dollar revenue per employee ratio. For her to be in a two to one, she'd only need 36 million in revenue and she's more than 20x that. So that's a hell of a, it might sound like a lot of employees, but it's actually fractional to what most companies would expect at that revenue scale. This is a two-part question. So one, can you tell me a little bit how uh, the Instagram story integration with the Shopify is a bit of a game changer? And then I think even as recently as this morning, there was some talks about Instagram launching their own standalone shopping app. Any uh, thoughts on kind of how, how Instagram has impacted your business, but how they maybe could be seen as somebody who's looking to compete in the future? Listen, on the, how could it change the, uh, the face of commerce? And it goes back to what I said earlier about shopping experiences really being non-linear these days and folks maybe discovering an item in one channel, it could be Instagram stories, could be anything else, and then seeking it out somewhere else, maybe completing the journey in a third place. As you think about a non-linear shopping experience, and as you couple that with the idea that 400 million people look at Instagram stories daily, I think the case for being there speaks for itself. In terms of Instagram launching something on its own, Instagram's a great partner. We align on roadmaps and are involved in providing the best commerce experiences we can independently and jointly from the beginning, so, so it's all good. I read a quote from your CEO, Toby, uh, that I thought was really kind of poignant when so, I was doing the research for you guys. He's a really quotable guy. Yeah, for sure. You're gonna read. There's a very large group of people. It's impossible to know how big it is, but I bet it's much bigger than people imagine who desperately want at some point to reach for independence. Find another way rather than for school, college, you know, whatever kind of lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just not for everybody. And we pretend it's for everyone. Um, this feels very powerful to me. What's your point of view on Shop being an enablement platform to create independent futures for those who want to build businesses on its platform? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great example of Toby articulating better than I ever could. As well, he should be able to, what our mission and purpose is. Toby, biographically, he's a person who had one of those nonlinear paths that wasn't Google and then get my first job and then ascend in that job. You know, I don't want to butcher his history, but he was you know, just one of these incredibly 
curious, brilliant people for whom school was probably too slow and taught himself things like engineering by soldering stuff together <laughs> on his own. And so he's had one of those nonlinear paths, which I think is, is what leads him to be able to get it and to express it in such a poignant way, I think, to use your word. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, Shopify is in the business of creating entrepreneurs, not in the sense of multi-billionaires, but in the sense of people who seek freedom and independence and who may have something that they're deeply passionate about that they want to express in this world. And there's all sorts of different lifestyles that work for different people, and and we're incredibly supportive of that. And um, when we think of starting a business or when we think of entrepreneurship, we're thinking of that independent lifestyle. We're thinking of being that true partner to folks who want to be independent. And if they have outrageous outcomes, then that's great for them and we celebrate that. But if they have a modest business that lets them pay the bills and be in a work environment where they call the shots and they get to make the decisions and they control their times, their, their hours, that is just as good from our position. And I think it's, it's always super interesting when product is almost discovered by accident or like that there's that true authenticity around Toby essentially just went out to create a snowboarding yeah. online retailing snowboarding company instead found out that there was nothing out there that did the job of there that he was looking for a product out there in the marketplace it didn't exist he built it from scratch for his own e-commerce platform and then realized that the business isn't the snowboard store the business is what got me to yeah. be able to do this. Yeah, I mean, it's, you just did a pretty good job of covering our origin story, yeah. but I think Toby probably thought back then when he was trying to sell, so he's a, he's a German-born guy who adopted Canada, Ottawa specifically as his, as his sort of adopted home base, and he wanted to sell Snow Devil snowboards and figured like the most trivial part of this problem is gonna be figuring out how to get the store going online, and lo and behold, this becomes like this, like the, the last mile problem writ large. And so he goes out and solves that problem, not just for himself and for Snow Devil, but for anyone else who would ever wanna do commerce online. Now, of course, we're now every channel, including all the ones I described earlier, Instagram, Facebook, Amazon, eBay, et cetera, and also point of sale, retail. But Toby solved a problem that he needed for himself and he solved it for the whole world before anyone else did. And one of the things that is such a great reminder of that origin story for me, you may have noticed this when you came up. So we're on the fourth floor here of 80 Spadina. I saw that Uh, you're still there. um, (laughs) Like next to an elevator where it labels each floor what company it is. The second floor is still labeled Snow Devil. I love it. I think having that reminder of where we come from is really powerful every day as we all come to work, company of somewhere in the neighborhood of three to 4,000 folks. Remember that at some point it was just Toby wanted to sell a damn snowboard. Yeah, that's awesome. I think I read somewhere where if you go to his office, uh, yes. he's still got the boards on the wall. Well, it's more than that. It's more than that. His, I, first of all, I love, like, this Toronto office is amazing and Shopify yeah. is investing in Toronto in a serious way. Uh-huh. Ottawa is really the corporate mothership. That's where right. our CEO sits. Toby's office is more than, it's more than has snowboards lined up it's a full-on ski lodge wow. with like like built out of like that log cabin kind of look like a fireplace i mean like there's nothing i like better than going to our auto office and getting to have a meeting in toby's office slash ski lodge so it's awesome um, it's incredible one of the things that i have heard a lot of, from the entrepreneurs who are on shopify is the moment that was very life-changing for them is when they they get that email that they got their first sale. The stores have been launched. They figured out the flywheel that you talked about. They figured out how to 
turn $10 into 20 through driving traffic through the site and through their platform or do something to get that first sale. You guys have some type of input with data that where you get that, get those signals that kind of show the health of the business or that you're hitting milestones or anything that parallels to your customer's experience of being able to wrap, to see those sales happening in real time. Is there something that really excites you about your marketing process that allows you to kind of know that things are going in the right direction? Without getting into too much detail, business milestones is effectively how we think about our CRM or customer relationship management marketing, right? So before you've gotten your first sale, you need a certain set of information to help you get to that first sale. Once you achieve a certain scale, you might need a different tool that we offer or a different piece of coaching information in the form of something like Shopify Academy, which is a set of courses we now offer to get you to that next milestone. And so one way of classifying and segmenting customers in your database is by where they are in the progress of their business. And that is one way we think about it. So you talked a little bit about your guys' point of sale solution and the fact that you you guys started off as an e-commerce company, but then eventually led back to brick and mortar. I had kind of an interesting experience this weekend in Santa Barbara where I was walking through the mall that I grew up in and I walked by Macy's and it's been turned into a Halloween store. I think it speaks a little bit to like what's going on in retail. I don't believe that retail is dying. I just believe that retail is changing. Like, do you have any thoughts on how the brick and mortar channel is being augmented by the work that you guys are doing in Shopify and where it's heading versus kind of the canary in the coal mine of everybody that's talking about retail is dying. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Yeah, on I mean, at highest level, I would say that our 600,000 merchants are, are pretty solid proof positive that retail is not dying, uh, yeah. but it is changing. And we discuss it in sort of this omni-channel, non-linear form of retail that's emerging in the 21st century. And brick and mortar is a channel. Online web, you know, web store is a channel, Amazon's a channel, social's a channel. And so um, I think the brick and mortar only highly intermediated relationship that deprives the true the entrepreneur, the manufacturer, the seller of the relationship with the customer and where that's the only channel, maybe on its heels a little bit, but retail writ large is absolutely not. And brick and mortar is one channel and our intention as an omni-channel retail operating system is to facilitate all of them and mm-hmm. brick and mortar absolutely qualifies. It's a part of that story for sure. I forgot my podcasting mic when I came out to this interview, so I had to go buy one at Best Buy today. And I walked in there and it took three different conversations in order to yeah. figure out where this thing is. It seems like that's a big point of frustration on why people just want to deal with stuff online because they don't have to deal with a sales associate or somebody that's getting paid minimum wage that doesn't know the product, that doesn't have expertise, doesn't even want to be there, it seems like a lot of the times. It seems then you've got other companies, say maybe like a Lululemon, for example, another great Canadian company up here who's creating not just a retail environment, but really... A community center, you know, for a yeah. lack of a better word, a, a place where you can come and do yoga classes or go do running and you can exchange anything you want based on the Nordstrom's model of anything you turn is, is, is okay. Are there examples inside of the Shopify client base that you've seen migrate from just being an e-com brand and is now building that customer experience on the ground from the perspective of a brick and mortar channel to yeah, supplement what you guys are doing. That question. I mean, the, 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 before I answer the question sure. about the specific brand, I think what, what the Lululemon example suggests 
is the primacy of experience, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't think about this as a brick and mortar versus online versus any other channel mm -hmm. thing. I think about it the, like, what is the quality of the experience, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so Lululemon offers an awesome in-store experience. Shopify merchants on their online web channel get to offer an awesome experience because they control the brand. And so to me, it's not a channel distinction, it's a quality of experience distinction. Mm -hmm. But to answer the question you directly asked, yes, we do have brands that start off online and achieve some level of success where they then migrate into brick and mortar. We have a female-centric operation called Bulletin mm -hmm. out of New York City that started exactly as you described and now has retail locations in New York. And so that's an example. Of, you talk about the spectrum of Fortune 500s down to up-and-comers like Bulletin, and that's one that we happen to love. And does your point-of-sale solution help tie back that customer lifetime value, customer experience to kind of give them that full 360 picture of whether that person orders something online or in a store. Is that kind of what you guys are looking to marry yeah. those, those, two, those two channels? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's actually something we didn't talk about yet, probably should have, is sort of the back office elements of what Shopify offers. So consolidated reporting, right? Mm -hmm. That's a big facet of what we offer. And so if you're in multiple channels, being able to report against that's going to be important. Just this week, we launched multi-location inventory, which is one of the most requested features from our higher-end merchants that may have more than one physical location, right? It's, it's not just sort of those fulfillment and reporting tools. We have integrations with the best shipping operations where we've pre-negotiated the best deals, right? We offer the ability to get a small business loan through Shopify Capital. And so there's a tendency to see Shopify as a sales operation, but it's really, in a certain sense, a, a small business in a box. Are there any standout stories for you of great salespeople who were able to call on you and break through, and what did they do that was different that made you take the meeting versus, you know, I'm sure you probably get hit up fairly often as yeah, a, CM, fun, a guy with a CMO title in the role. I complaining to, uh, to Dasha, <laughs> and I, awesome. We have something called an expansion pack, which is not mm -hmm. me, it's something it can, it's a person who can help you in like all facets of everything nice. you do. And sitting right next to me here is Dasha who can help me with just about anything. I, love I was saying to her today that I must get like 100 or 200 <laughs> cold emails a day. Like I don't know of any. Some of them are definitely valuable. Yeah. I have mm -hmm. no mechanism to sort out which ones. Yeah. And the quote unquote, the ROI on sifting through them, even to find the one or two that I genuinely presume are valuable, it's not just scalable. isn't there until yeah. they get lost in the mix. There's always one, like when I think about really great experiences, it's often people who aren't directly trying to sell me something. Sure. One I think of is like, there, there's, a, there's a company I love on the MarTech side, it's called Action IQ. Mm -hmm. It's offering a customer data platform that basically, if you're in the business of customer marketing or CRM marketing, one of the things you need to do is, is cut lists, right? Like we've got this new product, which subset of our database should we market it to, right? And that often looks like a marketer spelling out a bunch of criteria, sending it over to a marketing ops group or a BI, a, a business intelligence team. They then write SQL queries to extract the data. They then send the list back and the marketer goes, what? My criteria only led to 100 customers to advertise this to? That's not enough. What if I loosen the criteria to this? It goes back over the wall. Right? This customer data platform basically lets you drag and drop criteria and instantly shows you the size of the list nice. unless the marketer can create their own segments 
without dealing with BI, without dealing with marketing ops, and then deploy them. Anyway, it's not a story about why Action IQ is an awesome. No, no, no I love it. Yeah, although, kind of, although kind of, it's is. always great but, uh, to have a recommendation for um, people. I'm sure people think are of, thinking about that. So, but I always, I always think of like one of the best sales experiences I ever had was when their founder and CEO, a guy named Tasso. I was introduced through one of the board members of a prior company, mm-hmm. and figured like, oh, I'm just taking this meeting as like a favor to a board member. Tasso came in and he wanted to chat about where marketing was going. Yeah. And yeah, tucked into there is the role that Action IQ as a customer data platform can play in the future of the space and the industry. But to me, he had such a clear vision for where marketing was going. And it was almost tangential that there was a product to be bought to head in that direction. Yeah. I actually became, I, I believe, if not the first, I think the first, but if not the first, the second customer ever wow. of this tool, which is like always a risky thing to do. I mean, mm-hmm. what's the easiest way to get fired as a CMO? It's like <laughs> spend like hundreds of thousands or millions on a yeah. tool. On an unproven that asset. Not, yeah. That's unproven and doesn't work. Yeah. Of course it did work. And it, it ended up getting adopted. I'm not sure which ones I'm even allowed to say, but massive, massive, massive companies you know mm-hmm. and have heard of now use Action IQ. Pleased and proud to have been an early customer and the reason I was willing to take that leap is because I felt so deeply that Tasto, the CEO, knew where the space was going. Not because he sold the product well. He didn't come in with talking points or a deck. It was like a chit chat. Rather than come in and doing capabilities presentation or something like that, he just non-leading conversation about where the where the world's headed, where the yeah. industry's headed, and those things kind of came out more naturally than hard sales pitch type of a situation. Yeah, but I think it also relied on him having a genuine yeah. perspective. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that perspective might not have landed with everyone. There might be someone else, some hypothetical other CMO that's, I'm sorry, but I just don't think the marketing space is going where he suggested it was. Yeah, so he's taking um, a risk. Now too. I happen to think he was right. <laughs> so it worked nicely. But he had a real perspective and it wasn't, you know, a lot of folks come in and like the most typical thing I get from a salesperson, uh, so, so what are you trying to achieve in 2018 or what are you trying to achieve in 2019? <laughs> and obviously they're going to then tell you how their solution yeah. can deliver exactly what it is that you're signed up to achieve. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, feels like kind of a backwards, like, wait, that's the wrong order. Why yeah. don't you tell me what you what have? What you can do for me, right? <laughs> you know, so um, I'm always wary of, uh, oh, just tell me what your goals are so that you can pair it back to me. Right you know, your solution in light of knowing what those goals are anymore. Yeah, or all things to all people where everyone's, you know, people will grab those bullets and say, oh yeah, we can do that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So I have a lot of friends who worked at MySpace, you know, had a seat at the table at the beginning of social media. And I've heard some wild stories from those times, you know, a bunch of basically a bunch of 30 year olds running a $600 billion, $600 million company. Anything stand out from your time at MySpace and the, the beginning of social media? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny you say that it was a, it was a wild time. <laughs> I think when I joined MySpace it was actually immediately after the Fox Interactive acquisition, uh, nice. but it was yeah. still a wild still, time. Still early in, days. Uh, MySpace headquarters in Beverly Hills. Yeah. Um, and it was as, as you as you described it to, to take a step to address it more seriously. One of the things that it points to for me is that I was involved with a bunch of things that were early early. To, you know, when I joined what became Yahoo Search Marketing, it was yeah. Overture. Oh, they wow. embedded okay. they invented the bidded search marketplace that's now dominated by AdWords. Yeah. Got MySpace. I was involved in the very early days of social gaming versus a contractor to Zingo when it was 20, 30 people. Wow. Then social gaming network when it was maybe four or five people. You know, these were all companies that had really good outcomes. The, I think the lesson to me from all of that, and this includes the, the, the MySpace bit, is that a lot of times 
people focus on the entrepreneurial idea, but the reality is folks are often converging on the same idea at the same time, and so much comes down to execution. Yeah. You'll often find that when you look back at a space, was MySpace a little earlier than Facebook? Sure. Right. Yeah, but it was about the same time, right? Yeah. Having the better product and just better execution so often determines the winner. And now when people go to me, oh, hey, I've got an idea for a company, I'm a big deal, can you execute it? You know, <laughs> like, everyone's got an idea for a company, they probably all have the same one today because they're logical evolutions of ideas that preceded them. Yeah. Maybe that's a lesson from MySpace and just about everything else I've seen in the early stages. Yeah, it seems like you were able to make those strategic picks very wisely. You know, some of the names you just wrapped off being early uh, stage. Yes and no. Some, some of those some companies. Good, some were good, some were bad. There are people who will tell you they have perfect vision and they've only picked winners. Mm -hmm. It's hard when things yeah. are early. You know? One of the things I admire the most about Shopify, frankly, is that other than me and our new CFO, this is basically a founding team yeah. that's stuck together. So when you think about the vision of these individuals, they're all still here. And the only reason I'm here is because our CMO became the chief product officer. He nice. didn't go anywhere. Yeah, and yeah. the only reason our CFO is here is because our former CFO retired. Mm -hmm. And so you really have a founding team where no one departed and everyone had a shared early vision, and that's really rare yeah, when you think crazy. about how hard it is to, to pick winners, and they're all here and they're all together except for one guy who retired. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Any predictions on marketing trends and where things are headed in the upcoming year? Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's fun to prognosticate on, on what's coming. It's hard for me to say exactly what the time horizons are, so coming year, you don't know. I think certainly voice, uh, connected devices, you're used to a search environment where you ask a question in a bar and you get 10 results. Uh -huh. Like, what does SEO look like when there's one result one that's result. spoken yeah, to you, right? Yeah. Like, uh -huh. coming up number two is worthless, right? <laughs> Talks a bunch about VR, AR, so I think we've got that one covered. But I think shopping experiences are going to become much more immersive, and that may help facilitate sort of this promise of social commerce that hasn't really quite landed yet. But the immersive experience may facilitate social commerce in an interesting way. The, one of the ones that I always think is hilarious, it's sort of like what's old is new, is chatbots. Yeah. They were the cheesiest thing in the 90s, but coupled with AI and machine yeah. learning, they're getting awfully smart. It's too early for me to talk about, but there's formally advised a startup that's doing incredible things using AI to power chatbots that are really, in the, at least in the early demos I've seen, are genuinely adding value. You've seen the AI infusion into the marketing tech that Shopify offers its merchants, right? Yeah. You know, we talked about Kit and Ping earlier. So you know, those are some of the big ones. It's a fast changing space. And as marketing becomes more about data and technology, it changes faster and faster. So our job is, as marketers and CMOs is to be on top of those. Can't predict them all, but I can try to stay on top of them. Yeah, I had a pretty interesting call from a robo-dialer the other day that was pretty convincing and that I had a hard time getting off the phone with just because it seems so real. What are you most excited about future for Shopify? I'm in my lane. I come in as a new CMO in a company that's growing at probably an unprecedented pace for a SaaS platform. Um, and so I am very focused on setting up this marketing department, not only to be every bit as successful, if not more, as it has been in the past, but also to be built out with a set of structures and processes that can scale to five billion or so. I did one time reset on what some of our objectives would be, and that one set, one that one time reset involved certain org changes and things like that. But the guiding principle and the North Star in my head was what's the best way to do this such that we don't need to do it again until we're a five billion dollar company. And 
My absolute hope is we blink and we're there, but it's uh, it's about building for the future and helping. I've always joined companies in call it the four to six hundred million dollar range, and I find it such an exciting time in a business because they're typically early enough to maintain the excitement and agility of a startup. They're also late enough not to be in that situation where it's like, oh, if the next funding round doesn't come through, we're all, you know, we're all out of a job. But I really love that stage of companies where it's about growing up and, and making the transition from an incredibly successful startup to a true enterprise business. And as I walk into this really, really talented marketing department that my predecessor had built here at Shopify, taking it to that next level is what I'm very focused on. Right? Thanks, everybody. That's all the time that we have for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any future episodes. If you like the show, we'd appreciate a thumbs up or if you would share this with someone you know on social media. And if you have an idea of who we should interview in the future, please leave a note in the comments below. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.